We are, of course, doing this because it is the uh, 499th anniversary of the Reformation, as I mentioned earlier. Um, it is something that is an important part of our heritage, and we need to remember this because the battle has not gone away. Okay? Romans 4. Uh, we already read from Romans 3 to kind of give a little bit of context as to uh, what, why Paul brings this up now. As, uh, so here we go. Uh, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the, of the blessing of the one to, uh, to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised who, were, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring uh, that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is, by the, inher if it is the inheritance of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. For it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, in the presence of God, in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead, and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed, against hope, that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. 
He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Let's pray. Father, as we listen to your word, read and preached, I ask that you would help us to love you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, even as we hear your word preached. I ask that you would give us a greater love for your word, that by the power of the Holy Spirit you would write it upon our hearts, that you would fill our mouths with it. Help us to know it and to speak it to others, that they too might know the great hope and power that is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ, who was delivered for our sins and was raised on the third day, and in whose name we pray. Amen. There has always been a struggle for the gospel. It should not surprise us when we encounter it. On the basis of Scripture, we see that it has been prevalent through human history. Paul here, in fact, as he writes the Romans and gives them his gospel, as Sinclair Ferguson notes, he was most likely, in a sense, appealing to them to help support financially his trip, his expected trip into Gaul or Spain for the purpose of evangelism and missionary work. And so he's laying out his gospel, and there are going to be, as he anticipates, because of the presence of Jewish Christians, some possible struggles with the gospel. And so he, Paul is outlining his gospel and making it clear because there are obstacles. There were false teachings that had already risen within the church, and Paul needs to put them to rest. But it didn't end with the giving of the Scriptures, but we see in the Reformation, which we celebrate today, that Martin Luther and the other Reformers had, a, had a, realized that there had been an eclipse of the Gospel in their own place and their own time. And so what Martin Luther did was not come up with a new message, but he actually, as he struggled with his own sin and the impurity of the church, came to realize the old message that had been in the Scriptures and that had been in the church and began to preach them. He came against the um, false gospel that was being proclaimed in the visible church in Western Europe. We might think that Luther and Calvin, having won the day, it is all over. But I tell you, brothers and sisters, it is not. 
In the early 1800s, the Scottish preacher Robert Haldane journeyed to Europe. And one of the places that he went to was Geneva, and he spent an extended period of time in Geneva. Geneva, city of Calvin, heart of of the Presbyterian understanding of the Reformation. And as he interacted with the seminary students in Calvin's Geneva, he recognized they didn't know the gospel but in fact had come to believe a corruption of the gospel. And so he began to teach them, and suddenly a revival broke out amongst the students in the seminary because now they understood the gospel. Today, even in our own pulpits, there often can be an eclipse of the gospel. We see the problems that Paul outlines here in Romans 4 in far too many congregations, in far too much preaching and in books. We see distortions of the gospel precisely because of the sinfulness of the flesh, which hates the true gospel, which wants desperately to earn something from God. And so that's why we are in Romans 4 this morning. Our big idea is that God gives righteousness to all who trust in Christ's death and resurrection. And even now I see my failure grammatically in my big idea. This proves, of course, that I too am a sinner, (laughs) lest you have any imagination otherwise. As if that was the worst of my sin. Let's start with, we're going to break this up of verses 1 through 8 and then 9 through 12 and then 13 to the rest of the chapter because these are individual sections of Paul's ongoing argument from the life of Abraham. He's been defending his gospel and now he brings Abraham into the equation as we see. Paul understands the theological struggle of Jewish Christians. Remember, Paul was not one of the original disciples. He was a Pharisee. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees, as he says in Philippians chapter 3. As we see in Acts 22, verse 3, he notes that he was a Jew. He was born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in that city, Jerusalem. Educated, and this is important, at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are to this day, is what he told the people of Jerusalem. And so Paul was a Pharisee. Paul was a trained Pharisee at the feet of one of the foremost rabbis of Paul's day. Paul was of the same synagogue that debated with Stephen earlier in Acts. It was the synagogue that put Stephen to death. Paul was a member of that synagogue. Paul was there. Paul gave his approval. He understands these objections. He's about to raise to the gospel of Jesus Christ precisely because he once had those objections. And it wasn't until the grace of God subdued his heart that he no longer had those objections. 
And so he brings Abraham into the, into the, this picture here. How did Abraham experience salvation? It's very important. Remember, because he is the forefather of these people. They all traced their lineage bloodlines back to Abraham. They were also supposed to share in the religion of Abraham. And it's interesting that Paul starts off with, what does the Scripture say? He's bringing them back to Scripture. In a sense, Paul is exhibiting for them what the Reformers would call sola scriptura. The, the idea that the Scriptures are the final authority doesn't mean we don't study the tradition of the church, but it means that when the tradition of the church disagrees with Scripture, we go with Scripture. And so here, in his case, it was the tradition of the rabbis that was in question, and he says, let's go back to the Scriptures. Let's settle this with the Scriptures. And so he quotes from, from Genesis 15, verse 6, when he says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, that little word, counted, is an incredibly important word. That word is found in 10 of the 20, I want to make sure I get it right, 25 verses that are in this passage. Almost half of this chapter has that word in it. It's a very important word, and Marty Beale should be very good at this word because it's sort of an accounting word. How is righteousness accounted to people? How does it show up on your asset column in the balance sheet of your life? Okay? That's an important question. How does it get there? There are different understandings of how it gets there, and Paul is going back to Abraham and says it gets there because Abraham believed God. It was not placed there in the asset side of the column because he did works. Paul is consistent. And his understanding and explanation of the gospel. For we see this uh, repeatedly in the letter to the Galatians. He brings this up. For, and as well, we see Titus 3, which the men have studied recently. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of the works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. And so it's not as though God sees these good things that you do, and then he says, righteous you are. It's very different than that. We see instead that Abraham took God at his word in Genesis 15. He received the promise that God had given him, and therefore he received righteousness as a gift. Literally, grace. Yes, it's charis. It can be translated as gift, and it can also be translated as grace. 
And the problem was the Jewish understanding of grace. It's very similar to the Mormon understanding of grace. The, the day before we, I began preaching on uh, John 1, I had the Mormons show up at my door, and I was privileged to have four of them because they were doing some training. And so it got interesting on the doorstep. They didn't expect to encounter a pastor who was going to speak to them about his sermon the next day. <laughs> because the Jesus they believe in is very different from the Jesus we believe in. And in the course of that discussion about Jesus as the eternal Son of God, the question of grace came up. And their understanding of grace is very different from our understanding of grace. This should not surprise us. Their understanding of grace is essentially, you work really hard, and the grace of God comes in and makes up what's lacking. Otherwise, they said to me, Why would you obey? And so, it is a works-based relationship with God, and the sort of grace comes in at the end and kind of covers over the few cracks that are missing in your personal righteousness. And that was essentially how the Jews kind of viewed grace. You obey, you work your tail off, and then hopefully God will kind of fill in the cracks at the end, the few things that you may have missed. And this explains in part why they view faith as something that includes obedience. And when you look at the, what the rabbis of this time were saying, that's what they were saying. They, they, they understood Genesis 15 and the faith that is spoken of there as if it included obedience. We'll overlook the fact, of course, that Abraham lied about his wife so that he would not get killed by the Egyptians. Okay, And some of the other sins that we see that are in Abraham's life between Genesis 12 and Genesis 15. Abram had nothing to boast about before God in terms of good works. But we see in this passage, as John Stott notes, that there are two very different ways in which money can be credited to our account, namely as wages, which are earned, or as a gift, which is free and unearned. And the two are necessarily incompatible. This is the heart of the gospel. Is God rewarding the good that we do? Or is he showing abundant grace, freeness in this? And so Paul continues and clarifies this. He says, this is given to the person who believes in him who justifies the ungodly. And his faith is credited as righteousness. And so Paul is saying explicitly, it's not that God is is justifying the godly. God is justifying the ungodly. He's justifying the wicked, the guilty, the one who deserves to be condemned. 
not the person who is the pillar of their community. He's shocking them when he says this. For we see that Abraham, therefore, was ungodly, and we see that in the Old Testament. He came from idolaters and had lived a life of idolatry himself until God showed up on his doorstep, so to speak. He was not known for good words, works, and rather he was justified. And we see the same is true of David, whom now suddenly Paul drags David into this, say, okay, it's not just Abraham. It's one of the other great fathers of our faith, the great king that we all long to be our king, David himself. In a sense, what did he discover about this is sort of understood. And so he quotes once again, but this time from Psalm 32, of how blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count or reckon his sin. And so he says, they are still sinners. It's not that they are justified and therefore are righteous in and of themselves, but they continue to be sinners. I listened to a sermon this week. I won't tell you from where. I won't tell you who. But it was our denomination. And this person said something along the lines of, you can't claim to be a Christian if, and mentioned particular sins that were pertinent to his, his topic that morning. Now, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt, and that what he meant was, that those sins are incompatible, inappropriate for Christians. But that can easily be heard and misunderstood that Christians are not people who commit sins. That sins somehow disqualify you from being a Christian. And if we think that, then we have to take the eraser to Psalm 32. We have to say that, uh, David, your adultery, your conspiracy to commit murder, your mismanagement of your family, your ordering of the census, all of this indicates to us that you cannot claim to be a follower of God. That the blood of the Lamb sacrificed for the sins of God's people is not sufficient to cover your sins. That would be an undoing of the gospel. We see instead from things, places like 2 Corinthians 5, for our sake, He made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. We see this double transfer that takes place where our liabilities, our guilt, 
are removed from our ledger sheet. They're placed upon Christ. He bears them at the cross. And so Christ's righteousness is removed, so to speak, from our, from his ledger sheet and placed in our asset column so that we are declared to be righteous, not on the basis of our good deeds, good works, but on the basis of his good deeds, good works. And so we must believe and proclaim this gospel that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. Secondly, salvation is by faith, not rituals. Paul keeps digging a little bit deeper into the life of Abraham here precisely because of the next objection he anticipates them raising because that was an objection he used to raise. He goes to the subject of circumcision, precisely because Jews in his day had believed that circumcision was necessary to experience salvation and the blessings of salvation. In other words, the the Judaizers had wanted Gentiles not only to believe in Jesus Christ, but also to be circumcised before they could experience the blessings of salvation. In other words, they were to not just become believers in Christ, they were to become Jews who believe in Christ. And so he looks again to Abraham, their forefather, that they might understand the pattern of his salvation and therefore understand the pattern of the Gentile salvation precisely because Abraham was a Gentile when he was saved. So, He says, it was not after circumcision, but before he was circumcised. And it was not like five minutes before, 14 years before. The sign of circumcision, in a sense, wasn't necessary except for the continued sin of Abraham. In this instance, the taking of Hagar, so to produce an heir illegitimately, trying to fulfill God's promise by the flesh. At the sign of circumcision was given to remind him every day that it is by faith and by the power of God and not the schemes of men. During the Reformation time, and today even still, Rome requires baptism as what they call the first plank of justification. For them, baptism is regeneration. And so all sins committed up to that point in time are are washed away. Okay? So they believe that baptism is necessary for salvation. And now we might think, well, you know, that's Rome. What do we expect from the doctrine of Rome? But when I was a brand new Christian on the campus of Boston University, I I ran into a Bible study on campus and didn't know any better, started to go to the Bible study, and it turns out it was a group known as the Boston Church of Christ. And if you don't know anything about the Boston Church of Christ, they've changed a little bit lately, they've... Um, They've gotten a little less rigid in certain things, but they believed that baptism was necessary for salvation. 
And that was the issue over which they and I split. Because I read places like Galatians, for instance. As a young Christian, I was in my Bible, and I saw, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. And I made this reasoning in my brain, baptism is essentially the same. Baptism and and unbaptism are not what matters. Does that mean you shouldn't be baptized? Of course not. What it means is we don't rest on our baptism for our justification or our standing before God. And so tying salvation to any ritual is to essentially to reject the gospel and to remain in sin. Instead, what Paul says is that circumcision was a sign, the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness he had by faith. In other words, what circumcision tells us is righteousness is by faith, not by circumcision or anything else, only faith. And so if they wanted to appeal to him on the basis of circumcision, they they can't because of what circumcision actually meant. It was a sign and seal, but it's sola fide, by faith alone, that it itself didn't bring justification, but it testified to the nature of justification. It is not whether we are baptized, but whether you, as he says, walk in the footsteps of faith like Abraham did. So salvation is by faith. It's not by ritual. It is by faith to which the sacraments properly attest. Thirdly, salvation is by faith in the promise, not the law. This is a longer section. Hopefully I will not preach longer. Okay, I want to keep my promise to Steve Boyer. Okay, because salvation is by faith and the promise, not in the law. The biggest obstacle for Jews that Paul anticipates here is the law. And they had come to believe through a misunderstanding of the Old Testament because they sort of picked up in Deuteronomy, as opposed to keeping Genesis 15 in view, is that salvation came through obedience. When I was a young pastor, and we had just finished the worship service, and this young couple came in. Hmm, they're a little late. What do they want? (laughs) And so we went into my office, and they had wanted to be married in the building, and they had wanted me to do the, the wedding, and so I had to ask those important questions to make sure I was not going to perform a wedding that would be inappropriate. And so, are you Christians? Yes. What's a Christian? Simple question. It's one that we often don't ask. And their answer indicated they didn't know what a Christian was because they thought a Christian was a person who basically did good things and lived a good life. And so we had a conversation about what a Christian was. And by the time they left my office, I don't know if it was genuine or not. I think it was, because last time I met them, they were still in a church. But 
they realized that it was by faith that a a Christian is a person who trusts God to keep his promises in Jesus Christ. And so they left professing faith. Here Paul frames it in terms of being the true seed of Abraham. Who is counted or reckoned as the true seed? Who is counted or reckoned as the heir of the promise that was given to Abraham in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15? He reminds them that the promise came before the law. Once again, not by five minutes, not even by 14 years, but by about 500 years if we round up. Are you to say, Jewish Christians, that there was no one who was saved before Moses came down the mountain with the Ten Commandments and the animal was killed to make that covenant? No, it was always by promise, he says. Paul labors that in Galatians 3. And so the law does not bring salvation, but rather is used by God to prepare us for salvation, in part by revealing us as sinners who earn condemnation, but also by revealing the the just penalty of God and the use of substitution in the ceremonial law, preparing us for the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world because of the lambs and the bulls that are slain under the old administration of the covenant. And so we recognize with Gerhardus Voss, or should anyway, that legalism lacks the supreme sense of worship. It obeys, but it doesn't adore. Because it obeys to gain a wage instead of receiving a gift with gratitude. Legalism makes us our own savior. As opposed to being struck with awe that God would save someone such as us through his son. And so the principle of law is opposed to the principle of grace or the principle of faith because it is faith which receives the grace that is offered in the promise. And so salvation is sola gratia, by faith, sorry, by grace alone. Which is why Luther notes, without the promise, faith is of no effect. In other words, faith has to believe something that's been promised. He continues, and again, where there is no faith, there the promise falls. If no one receives the promise, it is not fulfilled. This is the condition God has placed upon the promise. And so we see that in Genesis 15, Abraham received the unconditional promise of a seed despite the fact that he was old, nearly a hundred, and his wife was barren. 
Faith receives this promise because of the one who made it. Because faith believes that he has the power as well as the desire or inclination to keep the promise. So faith honors God by recognizing his power as well as his generosity, his graciousness, his mercy. We think of this, for instance, in Jeremiah 32. Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. And so the promise of a child to the one who called light into existence is not too hard. That is the reckoning, the reasoning of Abraham as he, as Paul kind of lays it out for us here in Romans 4. The, the one who calls things which are not. Let there be light. Now there's light. Let they be separated. And now they're separated. Let there be animals. And now there's animals. Let there be a seed, a child. And there will be a child. It was, he reckoned that it was not too difficult. He was honest about the obstacles, but he was also honest about the one making the promise. And so faith does not ignore the obstacles. Paul notes he considered his own body, he considered the barrenness of Sarah, but he was still fully convinced God was able to do what he had promised. And what's interesting about that is that he then kind of says, Abraham believed God and it was counted for him as righteousness. He says, that was not written for him. Well, yeah, Moses didn't write it <laughs> almost 500 years later. So Abraham never read that. It was written for us that we might know the way of salvation has always been and will always be by faith in the promise of God. And so Paul brings this up again, but reminds them that the promise we have is one that is more fully developed than the one that they had. Because we don't just believe in the one who was the creator, but we believe in the one who raised Jesus from the dead. And so we're believing that righteousness comes, that pardon comes when we trust him who delivered his son over for our sins and who then subsequently raised him to life for our justification. That's what we're trusting in. That's the promise that has been made. That is where our hope is. That is what we must believe. Not in the general mercy of God, but in the mercy of God, in the person of Jesus Christ. In my old Bible that has since fallen apart, I used to have written one sentence from Packer's Knowing God. 
maybe you should write it too. Faith is self-abandoning trust to the person and work of Jesus Christ. I don't know why I'm using my right hand. I'm left-handed. That's what faith is. That's the best I've ever seen. And it keeps me from a general view of trusting God to the specific view it's Christ and His work that I'm trusting in, just as Paul says here in Romans 4. Do you believe He was delivered for our trespasses? Not just generally, but do you believe He was delivered for your trespasses? Do you believe that Jesus was raised not just for our justification for the church, but for your justification so that you could be declared or counted as righteous? And then when you share the gospel with people, that is what you're pointing to. Do you want to know what faith is? Faith is believing that God didn't just give His Son over to death, but for your sins. That Jesus was raised from the dead not just for fun, but for your justification. That you might experience salvation. That's what we're calling people to when we do evangelism, and we should be doing evangelism. And so we see that in Paul's laying this out in the life of of Abraham, that the implications of the gospel often replace the gospel. In other words, the implications are good works and obedience. We take those implications and we make them the gospel, the basis by which we come into God's acceptance. But Luther was clear about this problem. We therefore make this definition of a Christian. A Christian is not he who has no sin, but he to whom God imputes not his sin through faith in Christ. That is why we so often repeat and beat it into your minds. I love that phrase. (laughs) The forgiveness of sins and imputation of righteousness for Christ's sake. And he goes on to say, the reason we beat it into your minds is because we are so quick to forget it. We are not Christians because we do good works. We are not Christians because we receive the sacraments. We are not Christians because we obey the law. Rather, we are made Christians by the sheer grace of God, by faith in Christ, and therefore become people who do good works, as Paul says repeatedly in Titus 3. We are made people who receive the sacraments. We are made people who obey the law. Or maybe to put it a different way, we become partakers of salvation and then do those things out of faith, love, and gratitude 
But false gospels make us partakers of salvation because we do those things. Do you understand the distinction? Because that is the difference between salvation and condemnation. Between life and death. The biblical gospel and a human fabrication. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Paul. Thank you that he labored through this text so that we can be clear as to what the gospel is and gospel isn't. That he set a pattern for us that sometimes we need to explain things and sometimes those explanations can take time. And so thank you that he took time for them and by implication for us. And I ask that that, impl- that that time would not be wasted, but it would sink deeper, the truth would sink deeper and deeper into our hearts. Because I recognize that we have a tendency to uh, forget the gospel some days. And so by the Spirit, keep calling us back through the Scriptures. Keep being at work in us to renew our minds so the gospel gets deeper and deeper into us and becomes more natural for us to speak. And we ask this for your glory because it is to yours alone that the gospel gives glory. Amen.